The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading for today is uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In in all of our lives, there, there comes a point when we have to take a stand. Uh, We have to sometimes stand against our culture. Uh, There are times that we have to stand against our family. Uh, And then there are times we have to stand uh, against people in the church. Uh, Paul, in today's session, is in that last category where he has to confront a fellow brother in Christ. And even more so, he has to, to, to... to challenge someone who seems to be a pillar in the church. And in and, and, and doing so, he has to do it in such a way that it is obvious that the sin that he has committed or is committing is so egregious that, that it goes beyond protocol, that it goes beyond culture, that it goes beyond race, that it goes beyond everything else because this is not just a, a fickleness of opinions. This is not just something that I am making up. It is not just a convenience. This is the gospel itself. And I submit to you that in all of our lives, there are times that when the gospel is at stake, when the truth of the gospel is there, that that our conviction has to be stronger than anything else. Paul, in writing Galatians, is writing to a church that uh, is, is somewhat backsliding. They are turning away, you, you, as you've read, I'm sure. He says, I, I marvel that you are so soon turned away to another gospel. And then he asks, but this is really not another gospel. This is just something that people have made up to, to turn you away. And then later on he says, they're doing this because they want to glory in your flesh. They want to make sure that they can number you among their trophies. They want to make sure that when they go and give an account to whoever they have to give an account to, that they can say, well, look at what we've done by evidence of these people. And so as he's writing to this group, he begins first by defending his own ministry. And he talks about how he received the gospel. It was not from man. He didn't get it from man. And that even 14 years afterward that he went out for the first time, and he spoke to some of the elders, and that, that the gospel that he presented to him, that he received by revelation, 
was so strong that the only thing they could add was, well, we want you to consider the poor. And he says, well, I was going to think about doing that anyway. I planned on doing that. But he said, they added nothing to me. And so they gave to us the right hand of fellowship when we came and when we shared the gospel. But then it seems that some of the people from Jerusalem paid a reciprocal visit to Paul while he was at Antioch. And here is where the story thickens. This is where the plot thickens. This is where the story picks up. As they are coming to Antioch, Peter before had been eating with the Gentiles, and he was making himself at home, and he was eating whatever they were eating without any concern, without any consideration for Jewish dietary laws and and any other kind of laws that they had. Because earlier, as you remember, Peter had a revelation from God that this was something that he was called to do. You remember Peter being in Simon the Tanner's house. He is up on the housetop. He is praying. As he is praying, God shows him a sheet, and God tells him, slay and eat. And Peter goes to the dialogue, Lord, you know I've never eaten anything that was unclean. And God says to him, what I've cleansed, don't you call unclean. And so Peter realizes that God is telling him, I want you now to go to the Gentiles. One of the things I like about looking at Acts' account is that Peter when came, there were three men that came with uh, Cornelius' band, but then it says that Peter took about 10 or 12 with him. And my guess is that he thought, well, maybe if this is not the Lord, at least I'll have them outnumbered and so I can fight my way out of this. But when Peter comes to Antioch, Paul said, I withstood him to the face. Now, you have to know a little bit about Paul because generally Paul is not one that spends a lot of time bragging on himself. He doesn't spend a lot of time arguing, but if you study his history, you'll notice that Paul, though he describes himself as being weak and he describes his speech as being contemptible, yet when it came to things of the gospel, Paul was bold. There was a time when in the book of Acts there were some circumcisers that came and he and Barnabas said they withstood them. And then they went to Jerusalem to get the matter settled, and they came back. And then there was another time when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul said, no, John Mark left us when it was in the heat of battle, and so he can't go with us. And so the Bible says the contentions between the two of them was so strong that they had to separate. So but Paul was a very contentious person, and here is the third situation. Even though he is meek, normally when it came to the gospel, he had a conviction, and he had a courage. This is the third time. I've told you that Peter is there. He is eating with the people, and as the other people from Jerusalem comes, he separates himself. And so here Paul has to deal with this. Now, get the setting again. Paul is writing to a church that was already backsliding. They were already leaving the gospel to go back into things they shouldn't go into. And here comes one who should have been the person who could have helped solidify the truth of the gospel. But yet he turns and he starts doing something that the church had been doing already, but in another form. And so Paul is so enraged by this that he has to speak out of his conviction about the truth of the gospel. And I want to share with you a little bit about why it was so important for Paul to speak. First of all, it was because of the personality involved. The personality was Peter. Had this been somebody who was just 
another person in the church or a new convert doing this, it wouldn't have been so bad. But this was somebody that should have known better. This was someone who was one of the original 12 apostles. This was someone who had been probably one of the first ones to organize a church. This was someone who had been given a revelation by God. This is someone who was a main speaker at Pentecost where he saw all kinds of people from all kinds of nations come into the gospel. This was someone who should have known better. And there are times when the gospel is being compromised by people who should know better. The Bible says to us, don't be many masters. The book of James chapter 3 verse 1. He said, don't be many masters because we know that we shall receive the greater judgment, the greater damnation because if we don't offend in word, we're a perfect man. But, but as a leader there, sometimes you can say things and do things that will cause the gospel to lose its effectiveness. So Paul's courage of conviction came, first of all, because of the personality that was involved. This was Peter. This was not a young believer. This was not someone who just wandered in off the street. This was not someone who had not been with Jesus. This was not someone that God had personally given a revelation to, to go to the Gentiles and to share with them. This was someone who knew better. Because he should have known better and should have done better, Paul had to speak to him, and Paul had to address them. And I share with this to share this also, that there are times in our lives, and particularly now in our culture, when we as believers have to speak the truth to those even who are in power who should know better. There are times as believers that we have to be bold enough and have the strength of conviction to tell the truth to our families, to tell the truth to our leaders, to tell the truth to those who may be in situations where they have a great influence. But more than anything else, we have to be bold enough to speak the truth to ourselves. Because there are times that what we believe and what we do and what we practice is contrary to what God says. And when any belief, when any practice, when any thought is contrary to what God says, the Bible tells us that we should cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself into the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. The personality involved demanded that Paul speak. Second of all, the place that was involved. This was Antioch. Antioch was the place that many of you know where the, one of the first de de deacons came from. Nicholas, he was from Antioch. Antioch was a place where they were first called Christians. It was a derogatory term. But what it meant was that, that they were so close to being imitators of Christ that, that they said they're like Christ. It was, not a con it was not a term of compliment. It was a term that was derogatory, but, but it meant they were so much like Christ that we called them little Christ, imitators of Christ. But that's what we're called to be, imitators of Christ, little Christ, ambassadors of Christ. 
Antioch was the place that a revival started out and the revival got so hot that Barnabas went down to investigate. And then because it was so hot, Barnabas sent back and got Paul. Paul came down. Paul had been, been there for almost a year teaching and preaching and witnessing and sharing. It was a place where Agabus, when the Spirit of God was moving, Agabus stood up and he said, there is going to come a famine. And because of that, the brothering that were in Antioch sent relief to the rest of the province. Antioch was a hot place. It was a place of revival. And so for someone in the position of Peter to speak that which was against and contrary to the gospel in the place where God was moving, that was another reason why the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the conviction of Paul had to stand up and it had to address the things that were going on because of that sacred place. I share with you that in many a sacred place today, the truth is not being spoken. In many a church, the truth is not being spoken. In many a house of worship, the truth is not being spoken. We speak of what we like. We speak of self-help, and there's nothing wrong with self-help. There's not too much wrong with what you like unless it is contrary to what the Bible says. And then it becomes the doctrines of men. In the place where God should be revered more than any other place. In the place where all of us become brothers and sisters. But more than that and before that. In the place where all of us become sinners before God. In the place where all of us are on an equal plane. We have all been initiated by birth into the fraternity of sin. In this place, the truth ought to be spoken more than any place else. In this place, there ought to be conviction that gets us beyond our gender, that gets us beyond our political affiliation, that gets us beyond our economic conditions, that gets us beyond whatever it is that we enjoy and brings us back to the heart of what God is saying to each and every one of us. That's why there has to be conviction. That's why even in our churches we must speak what is truth in the sight of God, not what is convenient in the sight of men. That's why we must love his truth. That's why we must love his word. That's why we must study his word. That's why we must encourage our ministers not to make me comfortable, but share with me what thus saith the Lord. God will comfort me if I repent, but you share what thus saith the Lord. Paul's courage came not only because of the person, but also the place. Paul's courage came thirdly because of the practice that was involved. And in essence, what Peter was doing was caving in to cultural and racial prejudices. And in this environment where our nation seems to be more divided than I have seen in my years, there has to be the gospel that stands up and eliminates the practices of racial and uh, sexual prejudice. It has to be. If God's people can't get along, how do you expect the world to get along? 
If God's people can't embrace one another and encourage one another, how do we expect from the world? Paul tells us very clearly, judgment must first begin at the house of God. And if, ju- if the righteous scarcely be saved, then what do we expect will happen to the ungodly and the sinner? God calls all of us to be his one. And he reminds us over and over and over again that in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no bond, there is no free, there is no sentient, there is no more barbarian, there is no male, there is no female, but we're all one in Christ. And that is a truth that we must practice instead of allowing the world to shape how the church reacts to things. I share my congregation, with my congregation this principle. The black prejudice is no worse and no better than white prejudice. The black hatred is no better than white hatred. The black lies are no better than white lies. That all lies in the sight of God are lies. And that one of the things that we must have as churches is that we must do everything that eliminates whatever is not in the practice of Christianity and the practice of what God would have for us to do. Peter was okay as long as nobody saw him. Peter was okay as long as it didn't cost him any social standing, perhaps back in Jerusalem or perhaps in his own environment. Peter was okay as long as this was just something he could do on the side, make himself feel good, go back to Jerusalem and still have his social standing. But there's sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, that God calls us to a conviction that is so much different than what we've ever seen or what we've ever experienced. I grew up in an environment where things were very, very segregated. I started in segregated schools. I drank from colored water fountains. I went to colored bathrooms. I remember not being able to go in places, having to go around to the side or go around back to be waited on. And because of that, when I became a believer at age 16, I was fairly angry. I was fairly angry because there were those that would come in my community and tell me about the gospel, but yet pick my pocket at the same time. And, 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 and I, you can imagine all the things that, that were maybe going, were going on in my mind, but, but the thing that God did in my life that made the difference is that the person that he sent to help me more in my Christian walk than anybody I'd known was a white man. It was a white man that I found out later in his life, actually after he had died, at one point in his life was just as angry as I was. But yet God saved him, God saved me, and he put us both together, and we grew together, and I learned so much from him to at the point that at the end of his life he asked me to do his eulogy. I did his eulogy, And then I found out some things that I never could have imagined. And I never could have imagined them because the gospel that took place in his life transformed his life to such a degree that I never saw what would happen, what had happened before he became became a Christian. That's what the gospel is intended to do. It is intended to wipe away all the anger as it did in my life. It is intended to wipe away all of the preconceived ideas. It is intended to wipe away all racial lines. It is, continued, it is, it is intended 
to wash away everything that would keep us from being who God would have us to be to him first and them to, then to each other. As I said, Peter was fine as long as nobody would watch him. He was fine as long as nobody from Jerusalem came down who could cross-examine him for a second time and ask him, why are you eating among the Gentiles? Why are you lowering yourself to be among those heathenistic people, even though they have accepted Christ? The courage of conviction causes us to challenge practices that are not in line with God's word. I had to do that in my own life. I continually do it every day of my life, examining ideas, examining thoughts, examining uh, cultural ideas, examining what people say, because everything that God calls us to do will in some way challenge some practice that we have been used to doing. It may have been a thought. It may be an assumption. It may be a practice. It may be an association. But the courage of conviction causes us to examine what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we holding people in bondage? Maybe if they've sinned against us, why are we still holding them in bondage? It causes us to examine our practice. And any time God is taking over a life, he is going to begin by examining the practices, just as God did in Peter's life with the people coming down from Jerusalem. The courage of conviction will cause you to examine your practices. The courage of conviction, number four, will cause you to examine the product that's coming out of your life. What's coming out of your life? Jesus makes it very clear to us that we will know who we are and what we are by the fruit that we bear. Not by who we associate with, not by who our pastor is, not by what church we go to, not what the political party is, not what our social economic condition is, not what educational level we have obtained, but what is our life producing? The product of what Peter was doing was producing a spiritual environment where there are those that have and those that don't, where those that are acceptable and those that are not, where those that are uh, lovely to us and those that we despise. And if what we are doing is producing that product, then we have to have the courage of conviction enough to look at what we're doing and see that what we're doing is not producing the fruit that God said would come out of a life that he's in and that he is dealing with and that his spirit is abiding by. What is our life producing? I have to examine myself as a pastor. As I told you, I've been pastoring now for going on 38 years, 32 at one place, actually 36 years, 32 at one place, four years in the previous place. And I have to look, what kind of people am I producing? What is my ministry producing? Am I producing a people that can go to college and yet defend their faith in the midst of heathenistic practices? 
Am I producing a people that can go out and go to other congregations and join there and be productive? Am I producing a people that can go out and make changes in the world without hatred, without violence, and without fear? Or am I producing a people that's only bold when they're with me? If I'm producing a people that's only bold when they're with me, I'm not producing disciples. Because God never called me to make disciples to me. God never called me to make disciples to Bethel Baptist Church. God never called me to make disciples a Baptist. Contrary to what people believe, the Bible does not, does not say repent and be Baptist and you will be saved. Just repent and be baptized. And these signs shall follow them that believe. He says, by their fruit you will know them. Do men gather figs of trees that bear thistles? What does our life produce? Every now and then, we have to, in our own lives, be the fruit inspector. Nobody has to do it for us. Every now and then, we need to look back over our lives to see what has my life produced? Has anyone come to Christ because of me? Is there anyone that's walking more closely to the Lord because of their association with me? Is there anyone that is encouraged in the Lord because of me? The courage of conviction means that I look myself in the mirror first. And I say to myself, Thomas Wilder, what has your life produced? What is the product of your life? If you were taken out of this world today, God forbid, other than people crying, who is left to carry on the message? Conviction makes me ask that question. Conviction makes me ask the question even before coming here today. What is it that you want to leave with the people that you share with? And the answer is, I want them to have heard from God. If they don't remember my name, that's fine. If they don't remember what I look like, that's fine. If they never want me to come back, that's also fine, although my feelings would be hurt. But the most important thing is, did they hear a word from God? The product of Peter's actions was that he left the church divided. And Paul was so enraged that he said, even Barnabas, Barnabas, whose name means the son of consolation. Barnabas, who stuck his neck out for Paul when none of the other brothers wanted to have anything to do with Paul. Barnabas, who stuck his neck out for John Mark when Paul wanted to leave John Mark behind. Barnabas, the son of consolation, was so caught up with what Peter was doing that even he began to disseminate. And so Paul's conviction had to confront the product of what was being done. 
And as I shared with you, that confrontation has to begin in our own lives. I'm almost finished. The fifth reason Paul had to confront and why his courage of conviction came was because of the principles that were involved. Not just the product, but the principles. And the principle was that Peter was putting something else above his identity in Christ. Now, Paul, as you know, describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He describes himself as being of the tribe of Benjamin. He describes himself as one who has suffered more than anyone else, one who has been in labors more than anyone else, He talks about being a knight and a day in the desert. He talks about being bitten by serpents. He talks about being in perils of his countrymen. He talks about being in perils of the strangers. He talks about being stoned. He talks about being beaten, we assume with the cat and nine tails. He talks about all the things that were going on in his life. And yet, even though he has a strong sense of Jewish identity, his identity with Christ was more important than his Jewish identity. And so the principle that he wants Peter to understand is, if you're in Christ, that's more important than you being Jewish. If you're in Christ, that's more important than you being whatever it is that you identify with more than anything else. That if we're in Christ, our primary conviction, our primary means of identification should be in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. That comes first. Then you are whatever else you are. But you're whatever else you are for him. Whatever you are is because and for him. It is for him and it's to him and by him. What are the convictions then that made Paul so strong in confronting these things? We look at verse 18. And he makes this comment, if I build again the things that I once destroyed, I am become a transgressor. Number one, he says that if I am building again the things that I destroyed and I would add the things that Christ destroyed, then I am a transgressor. If I go back to anything else other than the cross of Calvary to find my identity, he says, that I am becoming transgressor. I am going back into sin. If I am more convinced of my sexuality or my race or my ethnicity or whatever it is that I am, if that is more important to me than Christ, then I am going back into sin. Because Christ died, that all of that will be done away with, the law and everything else as a means of justification. That the only means of justification is Christ Jesus, his blood, his sacrifice. So Paul's conviction is that that Christ is the one in whom I find my identity and everything else is secondary to that. Number two, he says, verse 19 and 20, that my real life, the life that God has called me to is hidden in Christ. It is not in anything else. It is not in my nature. It is not in my birth order. It is not in my education. It is not in anything else. It is in Christ. The real life that God has for me is hidden in Christ. I love what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. 
It says this, you are dead and your real life, I add the word real, your life, he says, is hidden in Christ. Who I really am is hidden in Christ. And the only way I'm going to find who God really intended me to be is that I'm going to have to go in Christ. I'm going to have to pursue him, and I'm going to have to let him and allow him and yield to him as he shows me what he created me to be and who he created me to be. Everyone else that will define you according to their use, your usefulness to them. If they need you to be an advisor, then they have define you as an advisor. If they need you to be the financier, they define you as their financier is they if they define you as someone that's lower than them so they can feel high then they define you as that it is only Christ that defines you as you were intended to be when he created you when you were just a thought in your mom and daddy's mind only he knows what your real life is only he knows who you really are even And only he knows what you are intended to be and only he can draw out of you and bring out of you and put you in circumstances where he begins to develop what he has put inside of you. Other than that, you'll never find out who you are. Because your real life, as Paul's real life, was hidden in Christ. Paul knew that. He had that conviction. And anything that interrupted him from pursuing Christ, he rebuked, he challenged, and he challenged publicly because his conviction was, my real life is in Christ, not in the law, not in being a Jew, not in being a Pharisee, not in being anything else that I am. It is in being in Christ. The final point that he makes, verse 21, he says, now if I'm joining myself, if I am defining myself, if I am taking my pride, if I am taking my my ability to to sustain myself through any other means, I am really frustrating the gospel. I'm frustrating the grace of God. I'm setting the grace of God aside. Because grace is so complete that if you have to add anything else, you're frustrating it. You're frustrating the grace. Grace is complete in itself. Grace is is self-sustained. It doesn't need your help. All grace needs you to do is accept it and yield to it and allow God through his grace to work in us that which he wants to work in us. He is able to do it. But if we put this on top of it, if we put that on top of it, we put something else on top of it. Paul says we frustrate the grace of God. Because God gave everything that we need through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we need to be who we are, God has given it to us. And so in addressing Peter's actions, which I believe he's continuing to do throughout this chapter, Paul says, to separate yourself because of race is frustrating the grace. 
is frustrating the grace of God. It's making God's grace look at you and say, how idiotic can you be? I am here. I am sufficient. I was sent from God to be what you need to be, and now you want to try to add something else and put it in my place, which can never, ever be what God intended it to be. No matter how Jewish you are, or no matter how whatever it is you are that you are, it never is enough to be what God has called us to be. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and Colossians 3.10, Paul summarizes all of what he has been saying to us. And he says, in Christ, there's a new man. This new man is created after knowledge, after the image of him that created him. And he says, in that new man, in that new creation, in that grace that God has given to us, there's neither Jew nor Greek, which means your racial differences don't matter. He says, there's no circumcision nor uncircumcision, so your religious differences don't matter. He says, there's neither barbarian or Scythian, so your cultural differences don't matter. He says, there's neither bond nor free, so your economic differences don't matter. And then he adds, there's neither male nor female, so your gender differences don't matter. The thing that matters to God is whether or not we are basing who we are and what we do on his grace and his word alone. And so as I prepare to take my seat, the final challenge I give to myself and I give to all of us is to have the courage of conviction to change whatever is not like God. Whether it is my thought, whether it is my attitude, whether it is my cultural practice, whether it is something that my family has been doing for years, if it's not like God, I challenge us to be as Paul, who even in the face of another brother who had been in the gospel longer than he, he had the conviction to challenge him. Because Paul's conviction in the gospel was stronger than anything else he could ever identify with. When we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, we see the same thing. He identified, with Christ. he identified with God more than anything else. He identified with doing God's word and doing God's will more than anything else. There was a time when his mother and his brothers came to see him because they thought he had lost his mind. As the Bible says that they came to take him because they thought he, said, he, they thought he was beside himself, as the King James says. And that's when Jesus said, when they told him, your, mother's and your, brother, your mother and your brother are out, Jesus said, who are my mother? Or who is my mother? Who are my brethren? Those that do the will of God, those are my mother. Those are my brothers. What was he doing? He was identifying his calling God as greater 
than his affiliation with his biological mother and his own brothers. That's where we need to be as churches. That's where we need to be as believers. That's where we need to be as nation, as a nation. That's what I believe God is calling for in this hour. People who have the courage of conviction, who will stand up to whatever it is that we must stand up against first, our own selves, and say, according to the word of God, this needs to stop. This thought pattern needs to stop. This conversation needs to stop because it is not producing the practices, the products, the principles that God would have for us to have.